If the Bible's got you tied in knots If you're burdened with religious thoughts Come grab a drink and join the choir It's Heretic Happy Hour Hello everyone, welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast I have eagerly desired to share this podcast with you and my friends Matt and Jamal. My name is Keith Giles. I am the um, author of a couple of books, but most recently, Jesus Unbound, Liberating the Word of God from the Bible. And um, hey, guys, Matt, Jamal, why do you guys say hi and uh, introduce yourselves? Hi, my name is Jamal Javanji. Uh, I am the author of Free to Love and uh, also working on a second book that's uh, hopefully coming out in the near future. And I'm a Buckeye fan. And uh, uh, and it's a uh, it's great. Day. They got their ass kicked this Woo! last week. Man. You know, it's a, it's un it's it's inexcusable. <laughs> and it, I, I think it has to do with leadership, a problem. Uh, yeah, leadership, uh, which we're going to talk about. Yep. we're going to talk about it, everything. I do believe everything rises and falls on leadership. I actually believe that. So we can talk about that later on in the episode. But it's great to be back on the Heretic Happy Hour with you guys. Yeah, and I'm Matt uh, DiStefano, author of a couple books and the aptly titled Heretic, which is my last book. And so happy to be here on the podcast again. I think we're episode 35 now, and uh, we've been doing this for a year. And man, I just love it. I love it. Yeah, man. Me too. It's And I love you guys. Yeah. This is so much fun. Aww. Yeah, it totally is. Aww. Why'd you have to leave? Why'd you have to move away? Uh, Well... It's almost like I haven't left because, you know, we're all together here in podcast, Bill, you know, podcast yes. universe. That's true. Yeah. We'll always have the internet. There you go. Jamal, do you got, do you got an announcement this week? Unlike all your other weeks? Yeah, actually I do. Um, I wanted to announce that we are getting back to um, a hotline. So we're reintroducing the hotline fresh and new this week. Oh yeah. And uh, yeah, brand new, brand new breaking news relaunched this week. And, um, and the number, I believe, is the same. Uh, does someone have that number? Um, yeah, I was wondering um, that myself. We honestly, by the way, by the way, this is not a bit, everybody. If you're listening, no, we, no, honestly we honestly do, do not don't. know what it is. <laughs> I have no fucking clue. Somehow, <laughs> the callers, somehow our listeners have, I mean, because there's, I, I think the people who listen to the Heritage Happy Hour are brilliant, by the way. And somehow they they get this from the interweb somewhere. They find the number and they call in. Oh, and- here it is. Here it is. Sorry. If you just go to our website, heretichappyhour.com, it's right there on the on the top. It's 2403 Heresy. But that's what it says at the website. And I don't know what those letters oh, line oh, up I, to. I know. I know. I know. It's 240-343-7379. All right. Keith has the rotary phone. Yeah. Perfect. Oh, that's awesome. Right. Awesome. So. There we go. So with the non, the few non-rotary phone users that <laughs> listeners that are out there, uh, that is the number, and you can call it any time, day or night, twenty four seven. And if if it's closed, if the if it's after hours, um, and there's no operator standing by, you can leave a text or a voicemail. Mm-hmm. Either one. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, we have a text that came in, and I'm going to read it. Um, quote. He's got to type it. He's got to type it first. Yeah, go. I got. Thank you so much. I'm sorry. I must. Almost forgot about that. Okay, so here's the text. Quote, hey guys, I absolutely love your podcast. It's so freeing to know that there are others out there like me who are asking these hard questions. I was wondering if you plan on doing more episodes that focus on how damaging the church has been to women 
and if you will do an episode about homosexuality. I'm so frustrated with how evangelicals have treated both of these groups of people, and that is the main reason I no longer identify as an evangelical. I would love to hear your thoughts on these topics. Thanks, Stephanie. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So actually that's a great, that's a great, um, thank you, Stephanie, for that, for that text message. Um, yeah, I took, we, yeah, we definitely are going to topic or tackle that topic. And so we have a couple of, um, upcoming episodes, um, that we're going to talk about actually in, in, we have the the title there quotes, women be silent question mark and the upcoming series on sex. So we're going to be talking about, um, sex and that, I'm sure that we'll get into, um, sexual orientation and also just on, you know, uh, the role, uh, the, the gender roles that, that have that Christianity has tend to box, you know, genders into and how that's created, uh, a lot of what, what we see in Western society. So yeah, yeah. We'll definitely and, do that. and, and not to make a shameless plug, but Danielle Kingstrom and I are writing a book on uh, marriage and sexuality and all that kind of stuff. And we do, we will be getting into uh, the church's role in perpetuating this idea that men are to have authority over women and all that bullshit yep. um, that we hear in the church. So yeah, that's also going to be something that I've been really interested and in, focused on. So yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, and you know, I, I, it doesn't surprise me that um, there's so many questions about sex because you know the guy who we've been told is our, which I believe Jesus is our standard who we're supposed to, um, you know, live our life by, um, is uh, was asexual and he never had a romantic, <laughs> never had a romantic feeling and never was involved in a romantic relationship. So we're told. So therefore, I can understand why so many people are trying to model their lives after him. And go, well, we don't really know where this piece fits in because, gosh, Jesus, Jesus did not have a sexual or romantic yeah. life. So wow. we're told, so, yeah. but I'm not saying I believe that. I was going to say, so I was gonna say yeah. hopefully people know you're being facetious right now. And I'm thinking, <laughs> first, I'm going, wait a minute, what? <laughs> oh, that's right. He's just anyway. kidding. <laughs> well, and I've always found it, I've always found it interesting that that is our view oh, yeah. in the church. And then, but then he gives marriage advice and it's like, well, I, I understand we think like, well, Jesus was God, so he has all the answers in all the world. But if you just think of it from like a human standpoint, it's like, well, if he was never married and never had a romantic feeling and all this stuff, well, how can he give marriage advice? It just seems kind yeah. of odd. Like we or, wouldn't take our advice from him when he's never experienced that. Yeah. Isn't it interesting that Paul said he wished people would be single like he was? He didn't say, I wish people would be single like Jesus was. Isn't that interesting? Ooh. Hmm, argument from yes, silence. This I is going to be this is going to be a great. I'm actually looking forward to the whole series on, <laughs> yeah. um, well, the women one especially, but also the whole series on sex, because there's so much great stuff to talk about that uh, I can't wait to jump into it. But oh, yeah. but we yeah. probably need to keep, move on with this episode. So I think we actually have one more. Yeah. Yep. One more text. Okay. Yes. No, okay. Quote. What is your view? This is another another uh, text from uh, a listener, by the way. Uh, what is your view on angels and demons? Question mark. And what is your take on what is commonly called demon possession? Mm. Not sure how I found this number, <laughs> but I hope someone. But I hope someone gets this. And this is from a listener by the name of Zach Parsons. Zach, thank you so much yeah. for that uh, for that text. I. It's, uh, yes. By the way, kudos. Congratulations on finding the number. I'm not sure how you yeah, did it. Yeah, because I couldn't have found it. I didn't. I don't even know what the number is. <laughs> it's incredible. But that's a great question. Great question from the from the listener. 
What do you guys think? Well, we might have to kick this one down the road like we did the last one and say that we are definitely going to have an episode coming up on demons and maybe even more on on Satan um, and things like that. I'll just answer quickly. I know Zach has probably read some Girardian stuff, so I know I I think he, he would probably resonate with some of the stuff on demon possession. I'll say for myself, I have no idea what an angel is. No, I've got no, I got no view on angels. Oh, no, you dude, guys. you know what? I, I want to make sure if we do an episode on Satan and demons that we either touch on angels or maybe we do a separate uh, podcast just on angels yeah, because I actually have a couple of angel testimonies. So I'm not, I'm not going to get into it, but oh. I, I believe I have seen at least one angel in my life. That's fantastic. Was it after you ate uh, some mushrooms? Is that what no, happened? no, no? It was after I flipped my car on the interstate, and oh, uh, an angel literally came, I believe, and helped me out of my car. Yeah, yeah, that's that's going to be fantastic. I do believe that there are other beings from other dimensions, and some of the, and, and, you know, really the word angel means messenger. You that's know? right. So there, I do. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, I, I don't think we're the only beings that exist in. And this is the only dimension that there is, and we are the only beings that exist that have consciousness. I think um, there are other dimensions in, in which there are other beings, and uh, yeah. they have uh, consciousness and have a mission and uh, send messages. I believe that very much. I yeah, believe I, I've seen angels as well. Yeah. I, I would also say that I think, though, that um, uh, a lot of what we typically uh, have or traditionally have called demon possession isn't may not be demon possession may actually be mental illness. Um, but that doesn't mean that mental, uh, that doesn't mean that every instance of that is mental illness. I, I do think there could possibly also be some demonic influence as well sometimes, but that's, that's again for, for us to unpack when we do an actual episode on the topic. Yeah. And when, when sure. we do that, when we do that episode, we should have Barrett, we should play Barrett Johnson's song. Barrett Johnson has a, it just comes to mind called uh, when I get my wings and it's uh, I think it's from his older album, new Jerusalem or something, but it's a really good song. And just, oh, yeah. Say, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, before we move on to the heretic of the week, I just wanted to mention the, that we do have a Patreon page what? and we, yes, yes, yes. It's, this is turning into our uh, hotline bit. Uh, we have a Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash heretic happy hour. And if you go there, you can sign up. You can help support the show. The show's not free, as we say in, in every episode now. Um, and so any giving back, if you've been blessed, if this show has touched your life and helped you in any way and you want to give back and you have the means to do that, you can go over there and you know, a dollar, two dollars, five dollars, um, whatever you feel comfortable giving is really, really helpful. Um, we still have that board game coming out. It's still in the works. These things take time. So apologize, apologize for that. But, um, that is still in the works. And we also, if we can get to our second tier, we still sometime in the future with your help, we want to do this show weekly. Um, uh, but we need your help. And if, if, if that's something you want to see on a weekly basis, then head over to patreon.com slash heretic happy hour and, uh, and offer your support. Uh, with that said, I guess it's time to get on to the Heretic of the Week. It's the Heretic of the Week. Hi, I'm Rachel Held Evans, and according to Twitter, I'm a heretic. Hi, Rachel. Rachel, uh, this is Jamal Javanji. It's uh, so good to have you on the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. Uh, welcome to the show. 
thank you. It's a joy to be here. This yeah, abs- absolutely. It's uh, this is something that we've um, like we 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 really love to have guests like like yourself on. And um, I when I heard that you were coming on, I was super uh, just excited. And um, just for our listeners, like I think it's <clears throat> ironic that um, that you are from Dayton, Tennessee. <laughs> Because isn't that where they had the famous monkey trial, like uh, uh, evolution kind of thing between, and it was like Scopes. a big debate between Christians. The Scopes yeah. trial, that's right. Yeah. The Scopes monkey trial of 1925. It's pretty, pretty important. It was considered the trial of the century. And it was, that was when uh, a local school teacher was prosecuted for teaching evolution in public schools. And so they brought in like all these big heavyweights to have this trial. So it was like William Jennings Bryan and Clarence Darrow, who was an atheist. And it turned into this big science versus religion showdown. And they brought in like monkeys and, you know, food carts. And it was, it was like kind of a, yeah, it was just like an event. It was like, yeah, it happened. It really was. It was. It was a big deal. It was the first trial to be broadcast across the ocean to the UK the, wow. on the radio. Yeah, wow. 1925. And so that. we, yeah, we have like a little festival every year, the Monkey Festival. Um, <laughs> but they never. They, <laughs> the, the, but the thing festival. is, it's super. It's super disappointing because there's never monkeys. Like it's just the Scopes <laughs> Monkey Trial Festival, right. and so they do like a play and they have lectures. And there's no monkeys. It's a. It's kind of disappointing. Wow. Yeah. We. Well, you know. I. Some. Uh, for me personally, like sometimes I kind of read into things. Like I'm, you know, kind of mystical in that in that sense. But like I just find it really ironic that, um, that that was the center kind of the beginning of like the culture war, so to speak, and you know, in which evangelical Christianity, you know, is being confronted with real life, you know, and that there's a, there's a, there's a war going on. And that was like the epicenter. And I just don't find, I find it to be really ironic that that's where you are born and raised and live. Yeah. I milked it a lot when I first started writing, like my first book is entitled evolving in monkey town. Uh, So I told, but then, yeah, but nobody bought it. So they, (laughs) they recovered it (laughs) and they recovered it and retitled it because they were like, nobody gets your illusion here. So yeah, I thought it was pretty cool too. And I was like, this is significant and nobody else that that's not particularly marketable though. Right. Yeah. But I just find I, I was, I was really struck by that. And I guess that leads into my, my first question, which would be, you know, like, you know, why would people consider you a heretic? Like specifically within the, in the Christian world, like why have you been labeled a heretic? Well, I mean, I get it typically on the internet from my male Calvinist friends. And they usually the, there's three things. I was like, which one do we talk about? So here's three reasons I've been called a heretic. One is because once I referred to God with a female pronoun. Uh-oh. That got me heretic. I know. It was a big deal. Um, councils were assembled. It was wait, wait, God, wait, wait. God is not a man? God. Isn't God a man? What? <laughs> and here's the male. thing when I would say that, <laughs> when I would say, well, you know, God is not a man. Like the response is almost always, well, sure, sure. I know God's not a man, but God's definitely not a woman, Right. (laughs) which I think kind of, uh, kind of shows what's going on there. So that's one reason I'm called a heretic. Uh, I've also been called a heretic because I don't really like to use the word inerrant to describe the Bible. Um, and that's kind of what I've, my latest project is around the Bible. So I'm sure I'll get a lot of that in the weeks to come. Oh yeah. Uh, And then, uh, you know, I think some people are gay and I'm okay with that. And <laughs> that also wow. will get you labeled. 
heretic. So wow. Those are the, the, the three most common that I, that I hear. Oh man. Yeah. Wow. Well, that, that totally, that totally makes sense. Um, and, and, uh, I think, you know, all of us on the, on the show can, can relate with that to some degree. Um, but I really, uh, I, I guess the, uh, something that I've appreciated about your work, and I wanted to ask you about this while we have you on the show is, and I, um, well, when I, like when I read the scripture and I, I see, you know, especially when Jesus is interacting with the religious community of his day, um, something that I see, and I feel like it's maybe some inherent in human behavior, it's to make institutions out of things that were not like, for example, in, in Jesus day, the Sabbath, the Sabbath was this big deal in which, you know, people were like forced into the mold of obeying this larger than life concept of the Sabbath. And it really lost its purpose in that. And then Jesus, I love this clarity. He's like, Hey, listen, just so you guys know, like this humans weren't created for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for humans to serve humans. And like, if it ever gets so larger than life that it doesn't serve you in a, in a healthy way anymore, like you need to drop those traditions or those ideas. And in the same way, I feel like marriage has also become like this institution, like the Sabbath that has this rigid box and, and there's all these rules and walls in which it forces people into it. And then like it stops serving people. And I feel like you've done a great job of saying, hey, look, marriage, like humans weren't created for marriage. Marriage was created for humans. And I really feel like you flip that and say, look, if it ever gets to a point where it's not serving people, specifically women, I feel like that's what you've really, yeah. um, you really spoke into that. Then, then maybe, so you've actually talked a lot about divorce and Hey, look, you know, like if, if marriage stops serving humans, then we need to like revisit like the rules here. So to speak, could you speak to that a little bit? Like, yeah. Yep. Yeah. That really came up in most recently with the whole Paige Patterson controversy where a prominent member of the Southern prominent leader in the Southern Baptist convention uh, was found to be giving uh, women advice, women who were in situations where they were being abused by their husbands, telling them that, you know, they can't divorce those husbands because, you know, the Bible says yeah. <laughs> um, the divorce is wrong. And uh, so you stay in your marriage no matter what. And, uh, and that caused quite a bit of controversy as that kind of was unearthed, which was actually a little surprising to me because I, that's what I always heard growing up. <laughs> and uh, that has been the position of a lot of pastors in my experience, that they advise women to stay in pretty horrible situations because of this sort of rigid commitment to uh, what they think the Bible says about divorce. And yeah, yeah it's, you know, a, a marriage is not more valuable than the people in it. and. Uh, so if somebody's being hurt or um, abused, especially, or if it's just if it's unhealthy, uh, then I think that um, much like the Sabbath, Jesus would call us to uh, honor the dignity of the people um, and to not have them in harm's way. It kind of, I mean, there's a couple of passages that it calls to mind. It calls to mind like the woman um, uh, caught in adultery, where um, Jesus is. I mean, to me, it's like it's telling a woman to stay in an abusive marriage is a kind of akin to um, having a surrounding a woman with stones ready to stone right. her. And uh, Jesus prioritizes the woman's life over strict adherence to the law. And we see this over and over again. Anytime the law 
gets in the way of the dignity and the, the life and the health of human beings, Jesus would step in and say, this is not the purpose of right. the law. Uh, even the, his instructions around divorce were actually intended to protect women because exactly. men were taking advantage of what right. the law, the loopholes right. kind of right. in the law so they could divorce for any reasons. And Jesus is saying, hey, you know, don't use this as a way to kind of get rid of your wife, which would be a terrible situation for women in that culture and in that time. Exactly. Uh, and so we, we, we kind of just misunderstand the whole point. You know, Jesus, when he was asked by an expert in, in the Bible, <laughs> an expert in the law, what's the point? <laughs> it was the most important law. Uh, element of the law. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all the prophets hang on those two commands. That's pretty pretty significant. The The point uh, is love. Yeah. And I think that's something we misunderstand. Protestants sometimes misunderstand about the law. You know, we've been so trained to think that there's law versus grace. Um, and I think that's just a false dichotomy that we have created around the law. And it's influenced by a lot of factors. Uh, you know, we can blame some of the the misunderstandings of that from the Protestant Reformation. But my point is, uh, you know, Jews see it quite a bit differently. And, and in a lot of ways, law is grace and was grace for the people of Israel. And when we uh, see it that way, when we see that the end, the point is uh, loving God and loving neighbor, then we can make better sense, I think, of what those laws are for. Um, both in both Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture instructions and New Testament instructions. The point is always uh, love of God and love of neighbor. Yeah. No, I, I love that you uh, that you clarified the fact that we typically, uh, on the issue of divorce, it's so ironic, right? So people, you know, men will say uh, to a woman in an abusive relationship, no, you can't divorce your husband because he hasn't committed adultery. And according to Jesus, the only mm-hmm. criteria is if is adultery. And since there's no adultery involved and he's just like smacking you around and abusing you verbally or, or physically or the children or whatever, and you're in this toxic abusive relationship, you just have to endure it because, because Jesus said the only restriction or the, the only exception was adultery. But what again, like you said, what we miss is that the statement was intended to protect women because in that culture, the woman was, um, she had much like today, but even worse than today. The woman had no rights. She she couldn't initiate a divorce, but the husband could just, whenever he felt like it, uh, he just wanted another wife to just divorce her. And then that was almost a death sentence for many women in that culture, because uh, if you were divorced, you very unlikely you would get remarried. Um, you couldn't really, there was much, there wouldn't, wasn't much you could do to support yourself. And if you have children to support your children, you were on your own. Um, and so Jesus' statement of that was to the men he was saying to the men, you don't have the right to abuse uh, and neglect women in this way. That, I mean, really, if we were to paraphrase what he's saying, that's what he's saying. We cannot more massively miss the point, really, right. <laughs> than by using it, turning it against women and saying you have to stay in destructive relationships or in an, an, an unhealthy uh, environment when Jesus was actually trying to protect women from that very thing. Exactly. He was trying to protect them from abuse, trying to protect them from exploitation. Yeah. And then to turn around and use that in order to exploit and, and put women in danger is that's classic example of the ways in which just not understanding the, the Bible in its sort of storied context and the bigger picture uh, just whoa, makes us drive off all kinds of cliffs, you know? Oh yeah. And I would love to, I mean, it's kind of funny. People take that so hyper literally. A lot of the same guys do not take, 
quite so hyper literally Jesus's instructions about, hey, men, if your eye causes you to stumble right. and look look after a woman with lust, then gouge your eye out. That yeah. for some reason has <laughs> Yeah, I don't see a bunch of guys quite running around with eye patches. <laughs> no, neither do I. Exactly. <laughs> Although eye patches look really cool, but yeah, I don't see that happening. So, hey, Rachel, real quick, I wanted to ask you about your new book, which is great, by the way. Um, and I wanted to ask you something. There was, a, I have a similar book on a similar topic coming out about about our relationship with the Bible. And so I wanted just to ask you this uh, and, and kind of get your reaction to it. So um, one of the... One of the marketing pieces, I think, or something that I saw uh, talking about your book was saying that your book would help people fall in love with the Bible again. And what I thought was interesting about that was my, my reaction, my, and what I'm trying to do in my book is actually to try to talk to people who I think are too in love with the Bible, and try to get them to not love the Bible, but to fall in love with Jesus. So I was just wanted to ask you, um, First of all, I mean, in what way is that accurate? Or is that accurate, that statement about you want to help people fall in love with the Bible again? And why do you think people need to fall in love with the Bible again? Yeah, I love that you asked that because you're clearly an author because you know that sometimes your marketing material might not be exactly what you actually right. think. Right. Yeah, but, <laughs> but in that case, in that case, it's true. It's actually true. Um, no, because I, I really, I don't want to cede the Bible to the fundamentalists. Yeah. Um, because I feel like I, I, there's the the Bible is just it is full of these stories and these poems and these letters and these this um, beautiful language that has such uh, powerful you know staying power and um, you know the Bible has been invoked to to you know break the chains of slavery and to you know ahead of the marches in the civil rights movement it's been you know used to um, yeah, so just about words to some of our deepest angsts and fears and um, and our deepest feelings about God. So, you know, I just, I don't want to hand it over. It's it's just too good to hand over, right. in my opinion, to the fundamentalists. And so what, um, what I hope to do with the book is um, to kind of just recount my own experience and, and to invite people into what I've learned in the last just, you know, decade probably uh, from... Bible scholars, from Jewish interpreters of scripture, from womanist and feminist interpretations of scripture uh, about how to appreciate it and, and enjoy it again uh, with your skepticism engaged, right. you know, with your doubts mm. and questions fully engaged. You don't have to set that stuff aside, right. um, but also, you know, with your imagination engaged. Uh, I think that turning point for me was encountering uh, Jewish interpretations of scripture, particularly Midrashic interpretations of Hebrew scripture, where you have these sort of fanciful, imagined stories, uh, kind of almost like fan fiction right. <laughs> uh, around the familiar stories right. of the Bible. Yeah. And just to see the, the, the sort of the willingness to play with the text that you see in the Jewish community and just the, the willingness to look at and engage and wrestle with the contradictions of scripture and the troubling stories in scripture and the, you know, the violence and the misogyny, the willingness to kind of go there and talk about it and have conversation around it and debate it without this fear of like, well, we have to figure out what this means or the whole thing collapses. Right. Uh, that's what I really mostly wanted to, to be able to communicate in this book um, was kind of give people permission to do that, Christians permission to do that with the text and to uh, to just invite them into the the joy of reading the Bible again, because I know that for a lot of us who spend time deconstructing and rethinking, which is really important, 
um, we can kind of lose some of our joy in approaching the Bible. So I was hopeful that I could help people recover a little bit of that. So it's um, the book is called Inspired, and it's different than anything I've ever written because I also incorporated some like original poetry. I did a, a short screenplay retelling the story of Job. Wow. There's a choose your own adventure <laughs> story. Wow. Uh, yeah, I had a lot of, I had so much fun writing this book. It was just, a, I had a ball um, because I wanted it to be fun. I wanted it to, I wanted to communicate that uh, understanding a genre of a given text is really important to understanding its meaning. And so I wanted to play around with genre myself a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I like that. Mm. So yeah, it was, it was a joy to write. And I think there's, there's a place for both types of books and uh, both types of work, the work of convincing people not to make an idol of the Bible, (laughs) convincing people to let go of their rigid understandings of the Bible and and rigid ways of interpreting it. And this notion that the Bible's clear or simple (laughs) or plain. The Bible clearly says, yeah. Oh my gosh. There's nothing nothing besides perhaps, (laughs) perhaps like the the word biblical, which drives Mm. me nuts too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's perhaps nothing that drives me more crazy. So we need we need to slay those idols big time. Like, and so I'm. I think there's a place for both of those conversations. But yeah, as we do that, I think you know replacing that way of looking at the Bible with something else is also important um, yeah. for those who don't want to walk away for good. Uh, I, I think uh, I wanted to ask if we could shift gears a little bit. Um, <clears throat> and so a lot of us, our our process, you know, we kind of. Uh, I mean, myself and Matt and Jamal, um, we kind of went through a, a process where we were raised in a very conservative, you know, evangelical Christian sort of environment, and then slowly th- pulled a thread, which pulled another thread, which caused another question. And we know this whole, we call this sort of deconstruction or, um, you know, beginning to question and doubt and, uh, and re-examine and come at things from another angle, and, uh, which is why we get called heretics. But um, so I'm curious, Rachel, uh, could you talk a little bit about your deconstruction process and what was it that first, you know, maybe caused you to ask these questions and, and what was it like when you started to ask questions uh, and the reactions that, you, you know, you got? Yeah. Yeah. I, like you guys, I was raised very conservative, evangelical. Like I was president of the Bible club and, you know, I was in a oh, yeah. and just, yeah, I won the best Christian attitude <laughs> award three years in a Do you, row. Yeah. That's awesome. In elementary awesome. school. <laughs> so, I mean, I was the real deal. Um, and then but, but in college, not everybody can remember the very moment their faith fell apart, but I do actually remember my very moment my faith wow. fell apart. Um, it was shortly after 9-11. So this will let you know how old I am. But shortly after 9-11, I was in college and they were showing all of this footage from this documentary called Behind the Veil, which was about what life was like for women in Afghanistan. I think the news was showing it to kind of justify the U.S. Uh, invasion of Afghanistan. So um, they were showing all this footage, and, and I'll never forget there was this one scene in this documentary, and it was the women had done the documentary themselves, so it was all very kind of, um, you know, they, they hid the cameras behind their big veils. And um, there was this scene where this woman gets drug out to the middle of a soccer stadium, and the soccer stadium is filled with men. And this is Afghanistan during the rule of the Taliban, which was pretty awful. And she had been accused of like adultery or something like that. No trial, no due process, of course. And they should show this scene and she's drug out to the middle of the soccer stadium. And this guy just lifts a gun to her head and fires and oh executes her gosh. on the spot. Uh, yeah. And they kept showing this over and over again. And I think they were, you know, using it kind of to justify what, what how the U.S. responded. But that scene, 
I watched it over and over and over again. And every time I saw it, I got angrier and angrier, not with the Taliban, but with God. Because everything I had been told growing up was that that woman would go mm. to hell because of she yeah. was not a Christian, mm. because she was born in a Muslim country. Uh, and I found that unacceptable. <laughs> yeah. I just couldn't accept it. I could yeah. not accept that a woman who had already suffered so much, um, like that this notion that like how she suffered in her life was nothing compared to what God was about to do to her forever, yeah. you know, yeah. in hell. And I was like, can't do it. Like at it all, the whole thing fell apart. So that question led to, you know how it is. That question led to questions about salvation, which led to questions about the Bible, which led to questions about how to interpret the Bible, which led to questions about evolution and science and history, and which led to questions about, you know, sexuality and gender roles. And I mean, everything got taken out of the cupboard <laughs> and strewn across the kitchen floor. Um, but it was a good, good thing. I needed that to happen in my life. Um, I'm glad yeah. it happened. Uh, I'm glad I didn't just accept that idea. I just couldn't. Um, so that's when it started. And, and, um, and so it's been a process of, I, I don't like to think of it as like you deconstruct and then you reconstruct. No. Um, I kind of feel like I live in a, in a house that's always under renovation, <laughs> you know? So where I'm kind of constantly deconstructing and reconstructing my faith um, in light of new information and in light of, um, you know, like life experience and the stories of other people. It's um, your faith should always be malleable like that. I think that's not to say it's easy. It sucked. It's hard. You lose a lot of friends. You, uh, you doubt yourself. You, there's a loneliness to it, I think sometimes. Um, But, but I, I can't, I can't fake it. (laughs) You know, I can't just pretend like I'm okay with, stuff I'm not okay with. Yeah. And so, yeah, we deconstruct. Yeah. And I think that that's an important point. I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, Rachel, is that at least for me and a lot of people I've talked to, it's it's like the, it, we take out the sledgehammer and then just only deconstruct and, and we're left in no more comfort comfortable place than when we were in, you know, I was in fundamentalism, Christian Missionary Alliance. So uh, rapture and hell and all that stuff. And that was very uncomfortable, but I, I kind of went through this process of just deconstructing, like with only, my only tool was a sledgehammer. And so I like that you mentioned, like it, it should be a complete process and, and this like almost dance of deconstruction and reconstruction as you go. And that's, that's the advice I tell people if I could give them that advice on, on what this process is like, don't just use the sledgehammer because we can all use the sledgehammer, but there's meat at the end of it. You know, there's, there's, there's a building that can, that can come up even if, even if the uh, whole thing is torn down. Um, but we still have like a foundation. So I think it's, I think that was great that you mentioned, you know, deconstructing and reconstructing. That should be the reality of this whole process. Yeah. It's a process. You're kind of always, you have to make peace with it. I think like instead of waiting for it to be done to feel like you're at peace, you kind of just to make peace with the fact that, Oh, I guess this is going to yep. just keep happening. <laughs> this is an ongoing thing where I think I've got it figured out and then something comes along and throws me for a loop. Well, you know, that's, that's life. And, um, yeah, I've kind of just made, made peace with it instead of fighting it all the time. That's not to say it's comfortable. And, you know, there, there are days when I actually, I don't know about you guys, but there are days I kind of miss fundamentalism because at least everything is figured well, out, you know, yeah. <laughs> like there's a certain security to just like, you know, we're right and everybody else is yeah. wrong. Um, 
that's that there was something kind of nice about that instead of constantly wondering if I've right. got yeah. it wrong. Well, there's a lot, a lot less a lot less arguments, I suppose, online maybe. Um, <laughs> or, or at least, or at least <laughs> no, that happens no, no matter, matter what. what. <laughs> well, the difference is the, the focus of the, uh, the the focus of the argument wasn't me; <laughs> it was the issue. And here's the thing, you know, I wanted to say like um, the, the valuable thing about, though, going through your own personal deconstruction and then reconstruction, um, at least what I found and I'll see what you think. Uh, and I want to hear a little bit, maybe some stories if you have if any about this, is that once you've gone through it, well, now you're more equipped when when you encounter somebody else who's also be just beginning to ask some of those same questions. You know, it's sort of like. That verse in Second Corinthians about the uh, the comfort that we are comforted with, we we comfort others. You know what I mean. So it's like we go through this very painful process and we pay a personal price for it. But at the end of it, uh, the beautiful thing is that we get to be the people now that try to help mentor and counsel and help others through what we know is a very difficult process. Yeah, yeah. This I tell people this story sometimes because I want to encourage them in that. Like, uh, you know, when I first started asking questions, particularly in a pretty public way, kind of doing my deconstructing on my blog and um, through my writing, you know, I had some friends pretty much bail on me, um, close, dear friends. Like people always say, how do you deal with the criticism? And it's really, it's not the guys right. on Twitter oh, yeah. that bother me. It's, it's the neighbor, yeah. you know, it's the, it's the, the, the girl you went to college with who won't talk to you anymore. That's the, it's the friends, the real life friends that, that it gets to you. Um, and so, you know, I had some friends who just kind of quit talking to me and which to be fair, sometimes I've maybe pushed a little too hard. Like I was a little bit evangelistic in my doubts, you know, so it's like a baby shower might not be the best time to bring up like eternal damnation, you know, just know the the time and the place, you know, like, what do y'all think about the issue of the odyssey? Um, but, uh, that, so I, I might've, I, I take some ownership of that, but, um, a few, about a year ago, I got a message from a dear friend who had kind of just fallen off the radar with me and had not really talked to me. And she said, uh, you know, I, I was not ready to be a friend to you then, and I'm sorry, uh, but I'm ready to be a friend to you now. And she said, um, because I'm starting to question yeah. now too. And I see that how I treated you is unfair. Um, and now, you know, my life hasn't really turned out ha as planned. And that's raised some questions about God and God's goodness. And now she's ready to talk, you know, she, and, and so I was able to be there for her in a way that I might not otherwise have been. So I, I tell people that story to encourage them that, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll lose friends and that's really hard. Um, but sometimes you gain them back, uh, in, in a really, in a better way later on. Uh, I'm always surprised who ends up kind of coming yeah. out of the woodwork to say, Hey, me too. You know, I have the same Turns out I had the same doubts and the same questions, and and so there's an encouragement in that. Yeah, for sure. I, I've had I've had the same thing with like my best friend Mike. We didn't have a falling out, but it's sort of through this process of individually going through these things that we bumped into each other. And then, as these, you know, I think C.S. Lewis has this quote where it's like friends realize that there's going to be a a kinship when it's like what you two, and so there's this like. Yeah. This bond that can be created um, over this process, as much as there are really shitty moments when you're losing all your friends, but um, you know, you, you may, maybe you gain new ones too, and that doesn't always ease the the pain of losing friends because I've lost a lot of friends throughout this whole process, and I would love to have them coming back in my life, um, but you know, su such is life, and may maybe one day it will. Yeah. <laughs> but but I love that story yeah. that you just told. 
And, and you meet, you also, you meet people kind of on right. the margins more. Like, you know, the people, like some of my dearest friends now are friends that I met through like the gay oh, yeah. Christian network, you know, because I'm not gay, but, um, but because of how my own faith has right. evolved and changed on that, uh, and on, um, you know, how we should be responding to those people it has put me in relationship with people I might not otherwise have relationships with. And it's like, I mean, I remember worshiping in that space at the gay Christian network conference and being like, so profoundly aware of the, presence of the spirit which sounds very you know mm. kind of charismatic for me um in a way i just hadn't felt in years because i was worshiping with people for whom their faith had been hard won uh and that i always feel a, a powerful connection there when you and i think the deconstructing process and questioning things and doubting things you know especially for those of us who come from pretty privileged backgrounds it puts us in relationship with folks on the margins and that's where the spirit is so active and moving uh, and I'm super grateful for that. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, I, you know, uh, Rachel, I know you, you're married to like 13, 14 years, something like that. And almost um, 15. Almost 15 wow. <laughs> oh, wow. How, yeah. And, and, you know, obviously I would imagine you, you and your spouse have come from, you know, come a long way as far as just your own journey spiritually. And um, how, how, how have you guys been able to like, like, is this not an, it's not a seam. I, I, I think when people think and they're in relationships that it's just like everybody goes together, but it's not always that way because you're still dealing with individual people in relationships. So how, how have you been able to navigate some of these really groundbreaking, earth shattering um, paradigm shifts with your spouse? And how would you encourage others to do that? Yeah. I mean, we, we were fortunate in that we both did tend have questions around the same time uh, and we're wrestling in similar ways. Um, even though we met when we were really young in college, but it, you know, it just kind of happened that way. And, um, but we kind of evolved in different directions. I think Dan would probably consider my husband, Dan, would consider himself more of an agnostic than I, I'm more of the religious yeah. one, <laughs> you know, and he's, he's more like, we're just going to get eaten up by the sun <laughs> in the end. So what's the point? So like, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but you know, he's just a little bit more like scientifically minded and, and has more of these sort of existential It's amazing that you're you know? okay with that. So, I think that's a huge statement in itself. Great. <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah. oh, totally fine with it. Yeah. Because <laughs> the thing is, like, when you marry somebody, you are not going to be the same people in five years. You're not going to be the same people in 10 or 20 or 30. Like, you're, you're, you're going to change in, in innumerable yeah. ways. And it's inevitable that your faith is going to change in yeah. some ways, too. Uh, and so like the whole dance of a relationship to me is like giving the other person mm. space to change and to, um, to have different ideas and, and viewpoints and uh, different struggles than you have and to grieve differently than you grieve and to, um, enjoy things that you don't necessarily enjoy. And, um, you have to, you have to give each other that kind of space for everything. So why not faith? Um, and I do think that this becomes problematic when churches, enforce these very strict sort of patriarchal, the man has to be the leader of the household. The man has to be the spiritual leader of the household. I think that's one of the reasons why Christian couples have so yeah. much trouble when, for instance, the guy starts to question his faith and starts to have doubts. Well, he's supposed to be the quote unquote spiritual leader, um, which people interpret to mean, I guess, always having your shit together, which would yeah. suck. That's too, that's too yeah. much pressure yeah. for anybody. So, um, 
Yeah. So I think that that we, we eliminated that pressure very early on. You know, nobody's in charge of anybody else's faith. Um, that we just try to be mutually encouraging and uh, respectful. And, and I think that's one reason why we still have a, a happy marriage, healthy marriage, in spite of those differences. Of course, now we have kids and they're little. Um, we have a two-year-old and a baby. And so, you know, I think questions of faith and how we're going to raise them will come up and will probably cause some tension. And I, I see that as being pretty unavoidable. <laughs> so we'll see, get back with me in another 10 years and I'll tell you how that oh, yeah. transition oh, yeah. went. Uh, but I think we're, I think we have the posture towards one another, a healthy posture that will get us through it. But I do think that it's going to bring up some, um, some questions. Cause I mean, it's like how you relate to the people around you changes when your faith changes. And then there's always the big question, okay, well, how are we going to raise our kids? What are we going to teach them? What's going to be um, most important in their faith formation for us. And I think that's going to be, um, that's going to be interesting to explore together. <laughs> right. Well, well, thank you so much, Rachel. Um, I guess the, uh, the last question we like to ask folks is where, where can uh, our listeners get a hold of you? And um, what do you have in the works? You've mentioned your book that just came out. Um, what else are you, are you working on that has got you uh, fired up? Well, I just had a baby, so all I'm doing is feeding that baby. But um, (laughs) my whole life now is just feed the baby, feed the baby, feed the baby, eat, feed the baby. Um, So, uh, well, people can find me. It's really easy. Just my name, Rachel Held Evans. Uh, My website's rachelheldevans.com. My Twitter handle's Rachel Held Evans. My Facebook page is Rachel Held Evans. Instagram. Ah. Yeah, I did a pretty good job with the the, the brand management on that one. (laughs) Well, that was that was. Well, that was Dan's idea. I was all like, ooh, let's do something clever. And he was like, no, just do your name. That way, like, no matter what you write about, you'll always have, you know, you don't have to change it every time you write a new book, which was smart. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so Rachel Hall Evans. Uh, and then the latest book is Inspired. Uh, the subtitle is Slaying Giants, Walking on Water, and Loving the Bible Again. So you can find that on the website. Um, and then I'm working on um, I, I, the next book. I've got two ideas that I'm floating around. Um, one would talk would be a little bit about the what I was saying before about uh, Mary as the mother of Jesus and and the women in Jesus's life and what it meant that God trusted God's self with women because uh, that's something that you see repeatedly in Scripture is Jesus trusted women he trusted women to handle money he trusted women to you know finance his ministry and to to house the people traveling in his ministry he trusted women to give birth to him to like to care for him so. What does it mean that God trusted women to that degree? That's something I'd like to write about. And then I also want to write about um, the experience of um, kind of wholehearted faith where we are willing to um, embrace vulnerability and embrace risk as part of faith. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are two book ideas I've got that, um, yeah, I'm about to sign a contract for. So (laughs) hopefully... I guess I'm going to have to do a little bit more than feed this baby. I'm going to have to also write a book. Can you, can you type, type with one hand and feed with the other? I have done it, believe it or not. It is, you just got to do it when you've got a minute or two here and there. It's total, when I was, when I first started writing, you know, I was like married and no kids. I would like light a candle and yeah. pray and meditate for a while and read some poetry. And then I would write for three hours. Now it's like, all right, I got. 15 minutes. Well, what can I do? Right. But it's good. It's, it's, it's good. I'm starting to so adapt good. finally. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, this is great. 
Well, I loved your new book, and uh, we are so, like we said at the top, we're so blessed uh, to have you join us. And what a great conversation. I, I, I think there was so many beautiful things that you touched on, and um, thank you so much. Thank you for being on the podcast. Well, thanks. I really enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate it. It's an adult conversation, so that's nice, too. <laughs> right. <laughs> Y'all want to talk for another hour? I'm up for it. <laughs> yeah. Now I appreciate I appreciate what y'all are doing and the space you've created for people to to talk about yeah. this stuff. That's, well, it's really would important. you say what's one thing that you're hopeful about moving forward? Like, what do you when you look out in the horizon and see what oh. do you see happening that brings you hope? I'm hopeful to see people taking action in the country right now um, with the country where it's at and the the just the political and religious climate. Seeing people not just talk, but actually start to take action. Um, you know, organizing, marching, donating, mm -hmm. uh, that's encouraging. Cause I think sometimes we like to keep God in our heads and, uh, it's good to see people, uh, and be mm -hmm. part of, you know, getting yeah. God out of our heads and into our hands and into our feet and into our, um, mm. our incarnated lives. So I'm excited uh, about that. That makes me hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Kind of getting beyond the keyboard to actually, stand up and go and do more than just post something on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, we get, we have to do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Rachel. It's been a, it's been a blast. Thanks for yeah. having me. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome, man. I love Rachel. What, what an amazing, she's an amazing person. I'm just so blessed that we got her on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I I really enjoyed that interview, and um, yeah, it, she's been some. She's somebody I, I've wanted to talk to for quite a while, and I'm really glad that she was our our guest on the Here to Cappy Hour. And um, I think I just love how she just kind of came out of the. She just was doing her thing, writing, and uh, she didn't. She you know she wasn't like a celebrity pastor. She wasn't like you know given some credence by the quote unquote official church world. She just kind of came out of the woodwork and started doing her thing and um and here she is and I, I i love i love that model yeah me too yeah 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 so thank you rachel for coming on the show absolutely had a blast totally totally so we're gonna we're gonna talk about <clears throat> leadership today on the show and um that's you know it's this is a very it's a hot button topic in that sense um because the question is what is a leader you know someone look like like rachel held evans you know Someone would say she's a leader in the church, but she holds mm -hmm. no office and never has. And I love it. I love that. I love, I think that's a, but the question of leadership, I mean, you go to, you go to a Christian bookstore. I mean, you go to, I mean, it's a huge, it's, it's like, it's all about pastors and in, in the Christian world and the, especially the evangelical world. I mean, it, the whole thing is run, is literally run by, by leaders, by, by the clergy, so to speak. And everything rises and falls on the clergy in the Christian world. And has for a long time. Um, I, I would, I mean, if I could just say this before we get into the talk, I do believe that leadership is extremely important. I believe that leaders um, do set the culture, set the pace for what we experience in the world. But what is a leader is the real question, and how is that defined? And you know, and 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 so we'll get we'll get into that. So, but I, I do think I, I, um, that should be said um, as we introduce the topic. But Keith, I know you you had a few thoughts before we get into the topic that you wanted to say. Yeah. Thanks, Jamal. Yeah. So first of all, this is a huge hot button topic for me. Uh, I will do my best to, <laughs> to control my emotion because boy, I just really, this topic really sets me off um, for a lot of the reasons you just mentioned Jamal about the fact that it's like in the Christian church, you would just think that there's nothing more important than leadership, right? Because we have leadership conferences and 
we have leadership study Bibles. And if you go to a Christian bookstore, there's a whole leadership section of the bookstore. And, you know, there's leadership gurus and you even have pastors. When I was on staff at churches um, in my previous life, uh, we were forced to read, the staff was forced to read, you know, the, all these books on leadership as if, you know, the CEO of Starbucks could tell me anything about how to love my neighbor as myself or how to uh, do all the things that Jesus called me to do. It was just really frustrating to me that we look so much in the Christian church in America today to a business model of leadership rather than to Jesus. So anyway, we're going to get into that in a second. But what I wanted to say before we really get into it, I want to be sensitive to the fact, and I, this is really a reminder for myself, to be honest, but also for you guys too, that we all just keep in mind. Um, there's a whole lot of people who listen to this podcast who, by the way, are pastors of traditional churches right now. And I think on the one hand, that's really awesome. I'm always blown away when somebody, you know, either privately or on the Facebook group, uh, the Heretic Happy Hour Facebook group, says something like, hey, I'm a pastor of a church and I'm a heretic, or I'm a pastor of a church and no one knows that I believe this or that, or I've changed my views or whatever. So uh, I love the fact that we have pastors who who listen to the podcast. I, I really appreciate you guys um, being being brave enough to come out and just really confess that and admit that, that you're struggling with some of these things. You're also deconstructing. And so as we, as we talk about this topic of leadership, and we're going to be a little critical of the, of the, uh, of the sort of evangelical Christian model of leadership and, and pastors specifically uh, in, the, in the modern church, but I, I want to make sure that you, no one feels like we're attacking people. I'm not attacking, you know, if you're a pastor, I don't think you're evil. I don't think you're a horrible person. I don't think you became a pastor because you're a power hungry, you know, egocentric, uh, you know, uh, whatever, you know, like you're, you're some kind of a, a, a narcissist or something. Narcissist. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that's not at all what I, I, I believe. I don't believe that. And I don't want that to come across. So uh, just wanted to put that out there before we jump into this. Yeah. I think that's important to remind everyone about Keith. And I'm glad that you said that. And I need reminders sometimes because sometimes what we do is we have our ex personal experiences and perhaps they were with a very, very, I mean, there's how many pastors are there just in the United States? I have no idea, but I know there's a lot. Yeah. And so if we've had like maybe two or three experiences with uh, what, and it doesn't have to be just pastors, any type of person. And then we, we, we seem to universe. We, we like um, make it universal that this is a truth about all pastors or something. You know, I mean, we do it with, uh, you know, with, with Muslims who blow things up and we, and we say, well, Islam must be a violent religion because of small group of people. There are probably a lot of great pastors out there. I know there are, yes. but uh, we, we just need the reminder that just if we've had bad experiences with certain pastors, that doesn't mean that we're going after these individuals. We just want to talk about maybe the structure of leadership and, and why we have these experiences that we do within the church. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So that, so yeah. So I, I need that reminder too, because I get emotional about this kind of stuff too, Keith. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think the, you make a good point too, uh, Matt, you know, because a lot of what we are sharing, a lot of what I share does come from my personal experience as a pastor. <laughs> Uh, and of interacting course. with other, you know, people who are pastors over me uh, over the last 25, 30 years of my life. And, um, and so, uh, and, and I haven't had a lot of experience that's convinced me otherwise. Like I haven't had a lot of experiences that have been like the exception sure. to that. Now we'll say, I'm going to go in and call them out. Like a couple of guys I know for, I know personally, 
uh, who are on, who, who listen to the podcast and who follow the podcast and who support us and even you know, on, are pretty active uh, on the Facebook page, guys like Jim Thornton or Jason Elam, uh, guys like that. I mean, I think these guys, they are pastors of churches, but they've got the right idea and they're very honest about their own struggles and questions. And they really care about the people, um, you know, the spiritual growth and development of the people in their church. And they're not mm-hmm. trying to draw followers after themselves. Their goal is to make their church bigger so they can make more money, you know, uh, all those things, which are great. And I think that if, you, if you're a pastor and that's, that's your understanding that you get that your job is, here's the thing, because I think it's not a bad thing. Uh, and it took me a while to arrive at this. It's not a bad thing to want to be great, right? I, I actually believe every person has a God-given desire for greatness. The problem I think we have is that in Christianity in America, we have confused greatness with being important or being first or being, mm. being you know, um, the CEO. Mm. Uh, and, but that is the absolute opposite of what Jesus talks about. Jesus doesn't say, don't be great. He says, hey, I, I recognize that you have a desire to be great. Let me tell you what greatness looks like in the kingdom. You're on your knees and you're washing feet, right? right. You love people so much, you forget your own needs and you just focus on theirs. And if you're that kind of a, of a leader, if you're that kind of a person, then number one, I'm going to tell you right now, you have way more influence in the body of Christ than somebody who says, sit down, shut up, and listen to what I said. Um, because people love, they know you love them and they know you genuinely care about them. Yeah, no, I think, you, I think that was really brilliant what you just said. But I want to go back to something that I think you didn't even realize you said, <laughs> which was that uh, you said something to the effect of like, pastor over me. Yes. And, and, and see, that's where I think we've got it all twisted. And like you just concluded with what Jesus said um, to his disciples. And there's all these, um, you know, these passages throughout, throughout the Bible. I mean, you go back to like the suffering servant in Isaiah, the, the one who shuts the mouths of the nations is the weak one who's, who's up on the cross, you know, the suffering servant. So it's all flipped. Like that's, that's where the true power is. And we've got this whole model, like, like we said, where it's, it's like this top down pyramid scheme model that is like it's more capitalist and and that's not to shit on capitalism but it's more like a business than it is <laughs> what i think what i think jesus came to flip i think he came to flip a lot of things on its head one of them was leadership so if you want to say that you want to be a leader you want to be a pastor you want to be this and that how about when we start getting in the mindset of oh i have a pastor under me because yes. It, a leader leads from below. Yes. We 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 do our things top down. G, a true like little Christ Christian follower of the way does it from below. Exactly. Yeah, I think if you yeah. walked into a, a into a fellowship of believers, um, and there was a true Christ like leader present, or I would say plural. It doesn't have to be one person. I think it should be probably more than one. Um, but I think in a true Christ like um, gathering of believers with a true Christ-like uh, set of, of leaders present, you wouldn't be able to point them out in the crowd because what you would see is so many people being empowered uh, and set free and, and you know, uh, given the opportunity to use their gifting and to bless one another and to, to follow whatever their calling was or, or all those things. 
that's what you would see. You would notice a, a room full of people excited about being in Christ, being who they're called to be in Christ, and walking that out in freedom. And you'd see that. You wouldn't, you wouldn't even notice who's actually the person quietly doing that. Um, because here's the thing, too, that kills me about leaders. Uh, the, 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 the difference, right, between leadership as we see it today versus leadership as Jesus talked about it. Like, a true Christ-like leader doesn't spend all of his time focused on leadership or talking about leadership because he's too busy, you know, like you said, on his knees, uh, serving and blessing uh, people around him that he loves and cares about very much. Um, and that's the real, that, and, and, and here's the thing. If we were talking about that kind of leadership, I would be all for it. I'd be excited about it. I'd be like, yes, absolutely. More of that. Unfortunately, we're not. What we, what we do is when we go to those leadership conferences, those Christian leadership conferences, or we go to the leadership section of the bookstore, um, or we read a leadership book, it's usually about how to get people to sit down, shut up, and follow your ideas. Um, and that to me is so anti-Christ. I just, I, I can't, I can't get behind that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think for me, when, when we think of clergy <clears throat> or the, you know, pastor, the office of pastor, and I say this as a former pastor and, um, you know, I, I know a lot of people who, you know, who play that role. Um, you know, I just think it's like the Bible, you know, it doesn't really exist. The Bible is, um, now the writings that are included in the Bible, those are very real, but the fact that they're arranged from cover to cover, 66 books, the way we have it today. I mean, somebody just invented that, like that just, and it came out of, you know, medieval thinking, um, and the need for control and to consolidate power. Um, literally what people, when they, when people say pastor, it's a, it's a re and it's just a repackaging of the Roman Catholic clergy yep. system. I mean, it's illegitimate profession. I don't care who you are. If you're in this, if you, if you hold the, the office of pastor, it's illegitimate. And I don't, I say that I, I don't make any bones about that because it, there is nothing. And again, I'm not somebody who holds fast to like, okay, I, every, all, all this, you know, but I think you can look at the, the, the scripture, so to speak, and you can go, okay, where did this idea of the office of pastor come from? You will That's not right. find it in anything Jesus talked about. So it's invented by people. And it is, um, it, it is one of these things that it's, look, institutions, and I don't care. I hear so many people, oh, my pastor's great. He gets grace. He totally believes in the goodness of humanity. I don't care how, what the theology of the person who occupies the chair is. You, It could be all legitimate right on. That doesn't make it any more legitimate. It's still an illegitimate profession that causes damage to people. It will in in time. I don't care how good the heart of the person is. It's, you're running a yep. machine, and machines have to have a CEO. And 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 this is not predominantly not the way um, the community, <laughs> so to speak, that Jesus envisioned was ever to run. So therefore, you don't need the office. So any institution that has a hierarchical or like even the term pastor yes. as an office. Just know it's invented. It's it literally comes out of thin air. It comes out of somebody's invention. It is it does not flow from nature. It's not natural. That this doesn't exist in nature. It is yep. a monarchy. And I don't care if it's a woman or if it's a man that operates at, sits on the throne. It is still illegitimate. So I say that. I know that's that may sound strong, um, but ultimately my thought on 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 leader on pastoring or leadership is simply that. 
it's i think i think it's another word we could use for for leadership is yeah. influence yeah. and you it's very natural so people some people have more influence and some people have less influence and in this new world that jesus envisioned the people that have more influence are the ones who love and love looks a lot like service it is not an office you do not need the title to do it this is not a it's just it's a misnomer anybody can do it yeah absolutely man and that's one of the things too that kills me about the whole clergy laity divide which by the way as you said is a complete invention of man that's not not there's no idea of this separation between clergy and laity, but from Jesus or from the early from the from the apostles or the early church, um, this is something that came in much later. That was a man made thing, and then um, because again, like the the whole point is that we are supposed to love one another, and anybody can do that, as you said. And listen, an eight year old girl can have influence by loving and serving people just as much as a, a man from with a seminary degree. I would I would argue maybe more, um, and yeah. So no, I, I just want to I just wanted to say something too about um, going back to just personal experience. So I also was licensed and ordained um, like 29 years ago, uh, Southern Baptist Church, and served at different you know different churches over the years and different capacities over the years. Some of it was good experience, some of it was not. Um, but one of the things about my experience uh, when I was a pastor. And especially when I would stand up on a Sunday morning behind a pulpit and preach a sermon, um, that I just want to say it wasn't healthy for me. Like it was really a bad thing for me. Um, and not because I wasn't good at it. I think actually the problem was because I was. And then I, my ego and my self-worth and my value hinged so much on whether or not I got you know, a bunch of people coming up afterwards and patting me on the back and telling me how great I was and what a great sermon that was. And it became more about that. It was more about the performance and, and, and it was more about me and my ego than it was about the actual people that I was intended to be helping, you know, spiritually to grow by my teaching. And let me give you an example of, of the, the realization that happened to me when I finally, the lights came on for me and I realized what was happening. So I had preached a, a sermon at this church I was at. This was the last, one of the last churches I served on staff at. And um, I, so I preached this sermon. I don't know what it was about the kingdom or something like that. And um, I thought it was great. You know, and I got a lot of people afterwards that said, you know, hey, good job, blah, blah, blah. Filled up my, filled up my love tank, right? I thought, wow, yeah, I, you know, this is really great. Um, but about, probably about, Three weeks later, we had this traveling evangelist come in and do like a weekend um, conference. And his first sermon, like on the Friday night, which is the first night of the three-day conference, he preached almost verbatim the exact same thing that I did. And everybody was just going crazy afterwards. Like after all I heard was how great this guy was and how amazing that message was and, oh, they'd never heard anything so great. And of course, I'm dying inside thinking, I just preached that three weeks ago, you know? And then the Holy Spirit, dude, this was like, the Holy Spirit just nailed me. I was sitting, sitting alone um, like the next night, and it was kind of, this kind of thought came over my mind. And the Holy Spirit said to me, Keith, if you really loved people in this church uh, the way you're supposed to, then you would be rejoicing right now that they finally got that message that you wanted them to get three weeks ago. 
but instead you are upset and angry because they are not giving the credit of that message to you. And dude, that's what got me. It just hit me like a dagger in the heart. I was like, oh my gosh. Yep, that's right. I care more about, I cared more about them praising me for being the wise guru who enlightened them than I was excited about the fact that they, they finally were getting something that I thought was important. And, and for me, I just, mm. it, it just became something where, again, I had to realize that teaching isn't bad. Uh, teaching is good. We need it, right? I think it's a good thing if people teach in the body of Christ. We do need that. But the problem was with me and the way I, it was unhealthy, the way I was filling that role. And it took me a, a long time to get the right posture where I genuinely did care more about people getting something and understanding something. And I just didn't care anymore about my ego. You know what I mean? But that, that was just like, but I think, I think the hierarchical position of pastor and teacher in the church creates that very unhealthy, uh, at least for me it did. It created a very unhealthy environment for it to be more about my ego and not about the people I was supposed to you know, love and care for. Yeah. And Keith, you mentioned something that, <clears throat> you know, um, that I want to touch on a little bit. You talked about like, um, it doesn't matter if it's a six-year-old girl or, you know, yeah, somebody like anybody can lead from, from, from love. They, they, it did remind me of a story. Um, there's this lady, actually, I, I went to see her, uh, uh, maybe a couple years ago. Um, it, her name's mother Mira. Mother Mira is this woman who's from India and, um, she comes from the Hindu you know, tradition or whatever, but she, um, from like three years old on, um, she was just recognized as having some kind of presence about her and uh, very loving, very tender. But she claims that she, uh, her mission on the earth is to bring the motherhood of the divine into, into manifestation. That's what she does. She channels or, or manifests, however you want to put this. Uh, she, believes that that's her role she's kind of this this avatar so to speak for the divine feminine and what she does is she simply imparts love and and wisdom to people through looking at them i know that sounds crazy she doesn't even say anything to her ministry and she's been people have were flocking to her in the hundreds of thousands of people in india they would flock to her in her in her towns and villages she would go from village to village and 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 just she would hold audience. What she would do, she would just sit on a chair and people would come up and just, and she would just look at them in the eyes and they would be set free from so many things just by imparting what she would say is the love of a mother to them through looking through, through just looking into their eyes. So I went to see her, you know, um, a while back, like I said, a year, two years ago, whatever she came to LA, she goes all over the world and literally fills up these rooms. People come to see her for free. She does it. It doesn't cost anything. She just sits there and people line up and they get, you know, 10, 20 seconds and they'll kneel down and just look at her. And it's just, it, there is an impact. Like I, I experienced that. I, I went through that. Like I was like, wow, there is something you tangibly can feel that she has influenced your life in some way, shape or form. And I, you know, people could say, well, it's because of the intention you bring to it and all that. And maybe that's true or whatever, but she was like three or four years old. It was just naturally happening. There was no office. There was no, this is, this, there was no like ministry she was filling, like in the sense of like, she took somebody's place or anything. It was just like, it just naturally organically kind of happened. And the, there are cases that like people, like I think some people are here to be 
leaders, that, that that's kind of their mission, their role is to influence. But that's very natural. It's not an office you aspire to. It's, it's just something you do when you are living into who you are, you know? And again, I, I think it's a great example of that. Jesus is a great example of that. I think like they, he was not appointed by any group of people. He was not trained. It was just very natural for him to live from his identity. And obviously he influenced lots of people yeah. because he was a leader. He was the good shepherd. He was a pastor, however you want to put that, but it's just who he is. Yep. I, I think also uh, something you're saying in that story you just told me, made me realize too, um, it's not always, in fact, I think quite often it's, it's not even a hundred percent of the, like when we when you see pastors that get elevated, right, to this son of superstar status, right? They're super Christians. They're super smart. They're more holy than the rest of us. They have all the answers. Let's sit at their feet and follow. Really, a lot of Christians, that's what they do, right? When they talk about their church, they talk about their pastor, how great their pastor is and all, all this stuff. And so we have sort of this problem with hero worship. But I want to say that's not the fault, usually even 100%. The, I wouldn't lay most of the blame at the at that pastor or that teacher, I think. A lot of the times it's the people like the, we as a people tend as human nature, we tend to elevate certain people to this certain status that is unhealthy. And we, we want them to be the super Christian. We want them to basically kind of do it all for us, even because what Jesus talks about and what Paul talks about is a body where everyone together is, you know, uh, is using their gift and not, no, there is no one person among us who is elevated above the rest of us. And in fact, that, if that did happen, that would be wrong. That would be the, uh, the wrong thing to do. We don't want to elevate one of us above the rest of us. We want everyone equally to be loved and valued and honored and given a place, you know what I mean, to really be who they are and, and, and live out their identity, whatever that happens to be. And if it's leadership, then it should be done in humility. And if it's, you know, as Paul says, whatever that gifting is, it's done for the sake of others. Um, and then it's also real quick. This also reminds right. me of, um, it, I've had many people talk about how in the book of acts, when there's the place that says that they cast lots to choose a new leader, uh, they, I think they say that it's to, it's to replace Judas, but in, but in many ways it's actually to, it also says that, uh, it's because the, the disciples say, you know, we're, we're too busy to wait tables. Uh, we need to devote ourselves to quote unquote, more important things. And so then they, they choose other leaders to go and wait tables, which is to feed the poor among them, uh, because they, the disciples are sort of like too important for that. And then I think it was Wayne Jacobson, but I've heard several other people talk about the fact that that, that moment in, the, in church history, and let's be honest, that was really early in church history. That was the beginning of the end, because when the disciples felt that they were too important, to wait tables and to feed the poor. That was the first mistake that moved them towards the later hierarchy where it became more about uh, them as leaders rather than them as servants. Hmm. Or as, as Paul later called them, the so-called leaders of Jerusalem. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, I think, and, and I want people to get, the, I want to pause for a second to get people ready to get their shock glasses because I'm going to mention mimetic theory. Ooh. I think mimetic theory can, can really help us in this. And, and what I mean by that is if we, have this, if we have this office of the pastor that's at the top and we think of it like a pyramid, are we not going to compare ourselves and imitate those of us who we think are higher than us? Are pastors not going to look at the, 
the church down the road and say, oh, they have this many people and they're doing this and this and this and then and then get into this like mimetic imitative battle within themselves and and maybe in in the real world too either overtly or passive aggressively or whatever but i want to i want to actually caution against this whole system not because i think pastors are bad but because because they become easy easy scapegoats and look at how quickly pastors quit or are fired or how long they last in this office it's very quick and it's like the turnaround rate is months right for the average pastors it's it's so it's less than even what my profession was was working in group homes which was like if you lasted three years working in a group home like that's that's like a career and and these pastors, i mean because because anytime something goes wrong in the church they just become the easy target that that the the um the congregation going back to something you said keith that it's not it's not even like the fault of these individual pastors it's almost like the people, like we have this hero worship and they're almost gods or they're messengers of God. And then when when they say something that doesn't quite fit or they do something that we don't quite like or, or what have you, they just become so easy targets that we can say, they're the problem. Get them the hell out of here. Get the new next guy in. Always a guy, <laughs> of course. Um, and, and I don't mean that in a positive light. Um, and, and, and then we just... so. So is it any surprise that pastors last for six months, nine months, 10 months, 12 months, and then we're on to the next yeah. one? I mean, I'm not surprised by that. No, you're and so, and so And so when uh, one last thing, if we want to flip that whole script and imitate someone, we imitate those from below. And, and so we're not in this um, trying to get to the top, all stepping on each other's toes and, and, and fingers while we climb that ladder up. We're the ones at the bottom holding the whole goddamn thing up. Yeah, I'm glad you brought in the mimetic theory thing because that's really true, man. The, that's the other thing about it that you start if you look at you look at the early church and then you look at us today. One of the things you'll notice is this idea, uh, this rivalry, right? Uh, that that we have right. now that they didn't have back then. Like back then, if more people got saved and more people were gathering, even in the same town and worshiping Jesus, everybody would rejoice and say, "Awesome, that's great." But nowadays, it's like if I've got a church of 500 people and then like two blocks down the road, another church opens up and they all of a sudden start growing. Uh, I'm not excited about that. I'm actually really upset about that. And I might even go have coffee with that guy right. and say, hey, dude, what are you doing? Right. You're, you're, you're competing with right. me. You're going to steal people away from me. And, you know, there's even pastors that will uh, make you sign. Like if you if you get hired as a worship pastor, you get hired as a youth pastor or an associate pastor or something like that at one of these churches, like a mega church here. Um, they'll make you sign a, 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 like a contract that says if you leave or let get let go, you won't start a church within 100 miles of their church because they're afraid you're going to like get a following and everyone's going to say how great you are and then you're going to leave and start a church and compete with them. Like that is insane. No Christian would have ever done well, that in the first century. That's just like what? Why would you? Why would you not want them to start uh, another you know fellowship of believers anywhere? Right. Right. And I think, and I, and I don't know the source on this, but it's something to the effect of like 95% of new church members are just like transplants from other churches. Yes, exactly. And don't quote me on that, but it's a freaking high percentage. I agree with that. I think that is true. Well, again, I, I think, um, I might get your shot glasses out for this. I, 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 
Okay, so when in, you go back to early church history and you look at, you know, look at the first century, look at Acts, people are wondering what the apostles are doing. And so the, I, I actually think the apostles were probably the male apostles. I mean, I don't think they just got it after the resurrection. I don't think they just figured it out. I think they were building something. And, the, and all the trends say, okay, they're, they're, they're building a tribe, so to speak. So whenever you have a tribe, which is like a, you have a select group of people, that there's somehow their their borders are defined um, in some way, shape, or form. It's not just human people, human beings being human, loving people, and helping each other. I mean, it's there's a definition. They start to take on this sense of like who makes decisions. I mean, obviously you see that with you know uh, casting the lots to figure out who replaces Judas. You still have this sense of like the apostles um, because of their office. I mean, it's about what these guys are doing, and again. Um, I don't know that Jesus modeled that um, in that sense. I don't think Jesus was modeling like a succession of power. Who has the influence now that Jesus is not there? But I think if you're looking for leadership, like leadership in the sense of modeling or embodying, you don't hear anything about Mary Magdalene. Again, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm being really serious. Like what was she doing when all these guys were wrangling for power? And when these guys were, trying to figure out who's going to be preaching, you know, and they, they're, you know, uh, so we need, we need, we need the deacons. We need to have some deacons to get set up so they can wait on tables so we can let the, let the apostles, you know, do their job of preaching and pro- proclaiming. And somehow they couldn't do that because they were tied up, you know, they were getting their hands dirty, serving and waiting tables, which is exactly what Jesus modeled, you know? So um, it, it's like, what was she doing during this time? Why she was doing something. For sure, you know, and there is a lot of history. Um, she she didn't just disappear. She didn't go away. She was actually, mo- I believe, very much modeling um, the relationship she had with Jesus and modeling the love that that she knew very personally. And um, there are other communities that were experiencing that. And you know, again, we don't hear much about that because the narrative of the church and of what happened is was designed for us in the fourth century by a select group of people that are now painting a new narrative for us. We don't have, because there, you know, if we have the writings, if we have the history of, of Mary Magdalene, we, it would be very, very different. I don't think you could build an organization or a tribe around that. So again, if you don't have an organization, a company, a CEO, a tribe, a religion, whatever it is, you don't need the CEOs. You don't need the decision makers. Well, um, you, yeah. you just have people who are servants, you know, who are loving each other, who are have influence very naturally. It's not, um, it, it's not a hierarchy. It's not. It's it, there are no offices to be held. You know, even the way they selected deacons, like you don't, you know, the, in the, in the book of Acts, and they selected Stephen and some of these guys, and they they were recognized for being, you know people of wisdom and humility and all that kind of thing. They didn't need to be labeled. I mean, it just didn't. You know, they were already doing it. They were, yeah. just doing I mean, it. Recognize the fact that yeah. these guys were already serving and, and yeah. you know, they had influence already. They, I agree. they, have, they totally, the, the, the need to label him and Paul did this. This is, if I have a knock on Paul, I have several, but this is one of them in his letters. Sometimes he would like want to say, okay, these are the guys, you know, um, and it's you don't need to do that. Um, it it it's very natural. People who have, and again, things will get separated. You know, it's like this whole idea of the of the parable of the the wheat and the tares. You know, and you know, like should we pull up the bad tares so that you know? And it's like no, let them be. Okay, let let it let leave things alone. Let it flush itself out. And those people who lead by love, 
will eventually, you know, their influence is going to grow over time and they're going to, they're going to shape the culture. We see that in everything, even in our own country, you know, over time, people who lead by love and nonviolence and uh, higher levels of consciousness, they tend to be remembered over the folks that are advocating violence, sectarianism, tribalism. Those people never last. Well, thanks guys. That was fun. Yeah. And we do have a hotline. We do. We just don't know the number. Maybe somebody could call in and leave the number on, on the hotline. <laughs> yeah.